Father, we're thankful that we can come here and gather and that today actually means something, Father. Today, like every day that we gather, we gather to remind ourselves that um, death is not the end of the story for us that have put our trust in you, Father. Our destiny is not determined by our failures or the things that we've done wrong, but because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, there is hope in the most hopeless of times. And so I pray, Father, that all of us that may find ourselves in here fearful of what it means to approach you, frustrated by what we feel here in this life, or for those of us that just feel like it's finished or it's done for us, I pray that we would be reminded that the life that we know right now, it doesn't have to be like that. You died and you rose so that you could change things. And so we pray that we would see that in your word, Father. We pray that we would be convinced by what your word tells us, Father. Lord, give me strength and clarity. Just make that plain, Father. But I pray that I wouldn't feel the need to add anything. Father. I pray that we would just hear what your word has to say and that our lives would be changed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm John, uh, one of the pastors here at the church. So glad to be here. So glad to see um, you all. And so I just want to start off with a little bit about myself. Some things that you all may not know. Uh, have I ever told you all about the time that I wished that I was Chinese? You're like, where is he going to go with this? I'll, I'll tell you. I grew up in a diverse place, right? Right outside of Houston, Texas. And in the school that I went to, it was so diverse that there was like so many people from so many different cultures. And we would get back from Christmas break um, and it would be like the end of January. And I would see that a bunch of my friends that were Chinese were just gone. And so I thought, man, did they all get sick on the same day? And they come back to school and I'd ask them, they, no, 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 no. Uh, it's Chinese New Year. So we get this day off of school. And it was at that point I was like, oh, I wish that I was Chinese. <laughs> I wish that how your people interpreted an event in history, I wish that that would be true of me so that I could get the benefit. And then what would take place is it would get close to Christmas and I would have a bunch of uh, Jewish friends and they'd be gone because they got a chance to celebrate things that were good for them. And it was like, oh, I wish that I was Jewish just so that I could. And I just found myself being in this place where I saw so many groups of people and they all had an event that took place in their history that gave them this uh, benefit. They could leave school and rejoice because of something that was done or something that took place for their group of people. Now, as we get to Easter, it's so funny because um, I was somewhere this week. I had a guy come and look at my house and he came. And he said, John, man, this is a big week for you. It's like, it, why? And he's like, Easter. You're a pastor. You're a Christian, right? The, uh, Easter is the Super Bowl Sunday for Christians. You come, you dress up nice. There's refreshments and snacks outside. The walls are painted. Right. 
Listen, so our world tends to look at this event like, yeah, this is for y'all. This thing took place and it's at the center of Christian history. But I want you to know this. Easter is not just for Christians. Easter is about an event that doesn't just lie at the center of Christian history, but human history. Easter is an event. What Christ did on the cross was for everybody. What he did on the cross was to provide an invitation for all of us to be able to come face to face with God without fear. It's something that's meant for all of us because it speaks to things that all of us go through. And I'm just going to give us three things real quick. The very first one is this relationship with God, regardless of who you are, regardless of what religion you ascribe to. Everybody knows that there's this distance in between me and God. If you know that God is perfect and you're honest with yourself, you know You know that you've done something wrong. You know that you failed. And you know that God sees through all of it. There's ways that we can fool those that are around us, but it's not so with God. So regardless of how much we may profess that things are good with us and God, there are all those times when we think about standing face to face with God, we're gripped with this fear. Because we look at God and when we think of what he wants, we know that we don't have it. When we think of who we want, we're scared that we're not going to be one of the folks that he wants. Relationship with God, common across the board. Two, frustrating times. Regardless of how well life is for you right now, you've been in a time or you will be in a time where it seems like Things are hopeless and you're frustrated. There's some of you that are in this room right now and you're barely staying afloat. And you've come to certain conclusions about what it is that you need to do in these times. Why these times came. Is God mad at me? Frustrating times. How do you deal with those things? And then the very last one is just failure and finality. We all come to a place at some point in time where we find ourselves so hopeless that we feel like I just need to throw in the towel and accept defeat. Things are not going to go well for me. I'm done. Some of y'all that may have found yourselves here today on Easter, and this is kind of your last ditch effort. And I want you to know that what Jesus did on that cross, although we're so familiar with it, what he did on that cross was meant to transform every aspect of your life. That if Jesus really did die and raise, that if he really is alive right now after being killed, then nothing about life as you know it has to stay the same. If Jesus really did die and raise, nothing about life as you know it has to stay the same. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 15, and we're going to unpack this. The good news is that there is an event that took place in history 
that can drastically change your life. You don't have to be an outsider that looks in and says, I wish that that was for me. Mark chapter 15, uh, just to set a bit of context, here's what goes on. Jesus has spent his entire life doing good. He's been uh, the best picture of a do-gooder. He spent his time healing, setting folks free, raising the dead, teaching about how it is that you and I can find our way back to God. And Jesus made lots of friends. There were lots of folks that came in and followed him by these droves. But Jesus, as he's on his way to his death, Mark chapter 14, if you write in your Bibles, write this one word next to Mark chapter 14, and that one word is alone. Mark chapter 14 is about Jesus being alone, on his way to death alone, innocent. And the lawyers, the people that had money that he befriended, nobody makes a documentary about how he's falsely accused. Nobody comes to his defense. Nobody says you've got the wrong guy. Everybody leaves him. The people that are close to him betray him. He's falsely accused. He's plotted against, reprimanded. Mark chapter 14, verse 50 to 52, just gives us kind of the clearest picture of what takes place as he's on his way to the cross. And it says this, when they come to seize him that night, it says this, and they all left him and fled. And then there's this next part that's just intriguing and hilarious. At the same time, it says this, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. How scared do you have to be to run away naked? They grab him and they seize him and he's so scared and whatever attachment he had to Jesus, he would much rather endure the shame of leaving his clothes behind just so that he could get away. This is not somebody that's done things wrong. This is somebody that spent his whole life doing everything for people and asking for nothing in return. And as he's on his way to death, everybody leaves him. falsely accused he's mocked he's condemned he's beaten and do you know how he responds to everybody leaving he doesn't flinch he doesn't tremble in the face of this trouble he doesn't trip he predicts it he says i knew that it would go down this way there was this comfort there it was this peace there was this steadiness because he knew that God was with him. And then we get to Mark chapter 15. And as we reflect on his death, I just want to say that point again, because Jesus lives nothing about life, the way that you know, it has to stay the same. It can stay the same, but it doesn't have to. Here's the first thing that we see in his death. 
His death takes away the fear that comes with facing God. His death lets us face God without fear. Look here um, at, at what takes place in chapter 15, 33. It says this. And when the sixth hour had come, this is about noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders heard it and said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And somebody ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. His death lets us face God without fear. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He draws their minds back to Psalms 22, which starts off the same way. When Jesus said this, I want you to know he was not overreacting. He was not like the kid that's in a room that cries out when their mom goes to the next room to prepare this bottle. As Jesus cried out these words, he felt this distance from God that he hadn't known from all eternity. The closer you are to somebody, the more that it hurts when that relationship is cut off. The closer the attachment, the harder it is to let go. The, the extreme pain that's felt. And so what goes on here is that Jesus feels abandoned by God. Some of us know and are aware of what it feels like to be abandoned by somebody that we love and we're close to. There's those of us that are here in this room right now that know or that have this feeling. If the person that I'm close to, if my spouse, if my best friend, if my good friend knew all of the things that I did, there's no way that they would stay with me. And so you don't tell them. Keep those things hidden. There's some of y'all that have felt the abandonment of people that have found out the things that you did and they don't want any part of you. Here you have Jesus who's not like us. He's perfect. God can look and see through all of what he's done, and there's no reason why God should abandon and leave him. He doesn't have that same fear when it comes to being face-to-face with God. And the abandonment that he fears from God is not circumstantial. It is a sign of God's displeasure. It's him being condemned. Not for what he did wrong, but for we did wrong. For what we did wrong. 
And the sign of this condemnation was the fact that he was crucified. And we're so familiar with this term, we see such nice pictures that we don't really know how horrific this death was. Do you know where we get the word excruciating from? Crucifixion. Here's what took place, just to be very, very brief. A person was hung up on this cross by their hands and their feet. They did not die by bleeding out. Do you know how they died? Their lungs collapsed and they would choke. Crucifixion was not a quick thing. People would be on that cross for days at a time before they died. They said that it got to be so bad that what would take place sometimes is that people would be on the, the edge of death so long that birds and animals would come and pick away at the body before they were dead. And the Romans would line the streets up with people that are crucified so that on, as you're on your way to Rome, you would know, don't mess with us. This is what's going to take place if you mess with us. It was horrific. It was so bad, Romans wouldn't even crucify their own people regardless of what they did because it was that horrific. Suffering is not always a sign of God's displeasure, but this time it was. Jesus died this horrific, this brutal death. And look what takes place as a result of this first 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And after he breathed his last, what took place was this. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. The temple was set up and they had this veil to separate people from God. Once per year, a priest would go past this veil to offer a sacrifice for God, and, and he'd have to prepare himself. It was a scary thing, because if he came at God the wrong way, he would die. And when Jesus dies on the cross for our sin, what takes place is this veil tears. And do you know why it tears? It's God's invitation that you and I come close without fear. Because of what God has done, the veil tearing in two was God's open door policy to invite us to approach him without fear. And this was all accomplished, not by anything that you've done, but because of what Jesus did. Because God is a just God. And for the sins that we've committed against him, we all deserve to die. And instead of our sins being laid on us, instead of you and I needing to pay the price for our sins, what takes place is Jesus who lived a perfect life. All of our sins were laid on him and God treated him as if he was us. He was our substitute so that you and I could approach God without fear. There's a story that's told of a man who was in the English and um, French war. And what took place was he was drafted to, to go and serve. 
So he had to stand in front of this judge. And if he refused to serve, he would have been thrown in jail or put to death. And he was scared because he couldn't really fight. So he knows if I go out there, I'm going to die. And so what takes place is as he stands in front of this judge, his friend comes up and says, hey, I'm going to take his place. I'm going to go out and serve for him. Well, his friend goes out and serves and his friend dies. Then a new war comes up and what takes place? This man gets drafted a second time and he has to stand in front of the same judge. But do you know what changed? He goes to this judge and he has no fear. Do you know why? He goes and he stands in front of this judge and he says, I had a substitute, somebody that took my place on that field and he died. And because he stood in my place, his death should be counted as my death. You can't ask somebody to go to war and die twice. So the judge set him free and said, you're right. You don't have to die twice. This is the beauty of what Christ has done for us. A criminal can't be hanged twice. If he really did die on the cross and pay for our sins, then what that means is that there is no fear when you and I who put our trust in him go and stand in front of the face of God because he doesn't see our sin because Christ paid for all of them. Here's what that means. It means that if you think that God sees you as righteous because of the things that you do, if you think your way to get access to God is by being nice to your next door neighbor, giving money, then what you're saying is, I know what Christ did for me, but God, I really think that you should take this instead. And that's an offense and it's an insult towards God, regardless of how well-intentioned your heart was. I have a good friend and he experienced a dear loss a few years ago. A dear loss is somebody that he loved a great deal. And he was at this place and somebody came up to him and in, a, in an attempt to offer him sympathy, went and talked to him and said, hey man, I had this dog once that I really, really loved and he died. So I know just how you feel. And the anger boiled up inside of this man because he felt, I experienced this great loss. And you, in an attempt to try to make me feel better, you try to equate what I gave up to the loss of your dog? How offensive is that? It's more offensive when you try to equate your good deeds, the sacrifice of a few dollars to what God gave up for your sin, the price of his son. That's an offense towards God. That's not something that he looks at and says, at least they tried. He looks at that and says, how dare they would do that after I gave up so much? Don't think that you're accepted in the sight of God because of the acts that you do. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. 
you need to approach God without fear has already been done for you. You don't have to do anything. No other works. Nothing that you have to do and give God except to repent of your sin and to acknowledge how horrendous the things are that we've done and to plead out to God for mercy. His death lets us face God without fear. Jesus experienced the pain of abandonment and it was a pain that he wouldn't wish on his worst enemies. So what he did was he took that pain so that his worst enemies would never have to feel what it's like to be distant from this great God. And so on the very front end of our time, we're not going to wait until the end. You don't have to come to a place. You don't have to walk down an altar. The veil has been torn. Access to God is provided for all of us who even now would sit in our seat and say, yes, that makes sense. I've stayed away from God because I felt like I had to do all this stuff and I had to clean up myself. But even right now, you can sit and say, God, I can't clean up my, myself. I know that you see past it all. I know that you're displeased with the way that I live. But if Jesus really did die and raise it, it changes the way that we approach God. We can come to him right now and turn from our sins and trust. Him. We can come to him and experience this unlimited grace and comfort because of the good things that he's done for us. Because Jesus lives, nothing about life, including the fear that you have when you approach God, has to stay the same. Jesus' death, his abandonment by God, provided you and I access to God. And that is very, very good news. The ironic thing about that good news the fact that we know that God is in control and he's done all of this stuff to bring us back to him is that it doesn't really do anything per se uh, about the frustrating times that you and I find ourselves in. We can acknowledge that that's true. We can raise our hands and say, yes, I believe that. But I find myself in these times where I'm incredibly frustrated by the way that God works life out. I find these times where I'm filled with all of these this grief and I disagree with what God has done in our lives. And I want you to know that if Jesus lives nothing about life, the way that you know it has to stay the same. Not only did his death give us access to God so that we can approach him without fear, but his death changes our feelings in the way that we react in the most frustrating times. Turn with me to um, verse 42, and it says this. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And some summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. 
And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where he was laid. Let me set a little bit of context so that I can help you see what goes on here. This right here, right? You kind of sit back and say, why does it give us information about his burial? It's all about timing. Jesus could have been crucified on any day of the week. This was God's plan for all eternity. But Mark gives us the details and he shows us here that he was crucified and he died at about the ninth hour. It's three o'clock on the day before the Sabbath. The Sabbath started at 6 p.m. And so what takes place for all of these Jews? When the Sabbath comes, nobody works. It's a day of rest. It's a day to reflect. It's a day to worship God. Things cl- The post office is closed. The bank's closed. Can't go out anywhere to get anything to eat. It's a day for you to sit back and to rest and to reflect on all of what God has done. Jesus dies close to 3 p.m., what we we see here. And so what takes place is this guy, Joseph, has about three hours to go and get him and to prepare his body for death. So he can't even do all of the things that you need to do to a dead body to make sure that it doesn't to make sure that it does doesn't stink. So he just wraps them in this cloth. He puts them here in this tomb. And so do you know what takes place for the next 24 hours? His disciples and people that put their trust in him have to sit with the reality that all of their hope and dreams died with Jesus. He actually died. He was dead. And all these people that put their hope in him can't use the ordinary distractions that can numb us from the grief. They don't have those things. There's this day that's spent where they have to worship God for all the great things that he's done. And if you ever found yourself in a place where tragedy is struck and things have been so hard, And then you come to church the next day and you're supposed to worship God and you can feel on the inside is worship him for what? I've walked with him. I've done the things that he's called me to do and everything has fallen apart. And this is where they are. A group of people who have to sit with this grief and disappointment and they feel Abandoned by God. Feelings are gifts because they help us to see where they are. It helps us to see where we are. But sometimes feelings can be distracting because they blind us to all of what God's doing. In this day, this one day, people felt alone. Not because God didn't do great things. 
They felt alone because they weren't aware of all of what God was doing. Uh, I had a good friend this past week share with me an art article. And in this art, art article, there was this one line that said this. Children are great observers, but they're terrible interpreters. They're great at making observations, but the conclusions that they come to are awful, right? So like kids, if they want something from you, they'll ask you. If you, if you ignore them or keep on trying to do what you do, they observe that they didn't get what they want. And the conclusion that they come to is, you must not have heard me, so let me say it louder. And let me continue to say it until I get what I want. You and I are the same way, especially when it comes to God. We think God's activity is defined by our awareness of his activity. And that is not true. God's activity is not confined to your awareness of the things that he's done. But if we think that way, then you and I will find ourselves filled with grief when we should be filled with relief. They have no clue what Christ has done here. In the same way that in the creation of the world, God worked for six days and on the seventh day he rested and he ceased from his work because he accomplished this great feat. Jesus worked for these six days. He worked for the years that he was here. He died and on the Sabbath, Jesus ceased from this work because he was finished. He accomplished a great feat. He accomplished the greatest thing that had been done since the creation of the world. He accomplished what only God could do, and he died on the cross for our sins. God's activity is not confined to our awareness. God is a better strategist than you are a detective. You're never going to be aware of all of the facts. It's you will never be aware of all that God is doing. So if you base your feelings on the circumstances that you find yourself in, you're always going to be frustrated. You're always going to be downcast. You're always going to be depressed because there's no way that we can know all of what God is doing. If you try to drink up the ocean of his knowledge, you will drown. So do you know what we do? Our praise and our obedience is not based on the circumstances that we find ourselves in. It's not based on what we can see and what we're aware of. Our praise and obedience is based on the character of God. Charles Spurgeon says, God is too good to be unkind. He's too wise to be confused. Even if I can't trace his hand, I can always trust his heart. God has revealed his character so that regardless of where you are, regardless of where you find yourself in, you can know there is a reason to praise him. 
you can know that we don't have to wait like Tripp so eloquently said until things work themselves out. Because the reality is you and I may not be here to see the way that they work themselves out, but you and I can have confidence to know that they will work themselves out. What that means for us as well is that for those of us that really believe that Jesus died and that he rose from the dead, we should be the most patient of people when it comes to evaluating God's goodness. We're so quick to jump to conclusions about how good God is or why this took place. As if our awareness of all of what's gone on is all that God set out on the table and says, judge me based on this. It's too limited. It's too narrow. You're never going to know all of the facts. I want you to hear that right now. You will never be aware of all that God is doing. So it's a fool's errand to try to base your thoughts on God by an awareness of all of what he's doing. Look at what he's done and be mindful of the fact that he doesn't change. The same God that we read about here is the same God that is living right now. That is right. Shoot. So if you want to know how to pray for people that find themselves so frustrated with life, pray that God would give them a glimpse and they would just see his character clearly and it would enable them to trust him. Think of folks in your life right now that are downcast and and you say, I don't know what to do. Pray. Pray what? Pray that they would see God clearly. His death takes the fear out of us facing God. His death rearranges the way that you and I face frustrating times. And lastly, his new life changes our view of the word final or finished or failure. It's 16 verse 1. When the Sabbath had passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And as they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. And hear the tenses here of the verb, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. There's nobody here. But go tell his disciples. And Peter, that he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. 
and they said nothing uh, and, and anyone because they were afraid. Here's what takes place. This little story in a nutshell. The Sabbath comes as soon as the sun rises, as soon as they can get to work. Do you know the first thing that these women do? They take the spices to go treat his body so that he won't stink. They go to do all of the things that you should do to a dead man. And the angel comes. And do you know what he says his instructions are to them? Listen, Jesus' story is not done and neither is yours. Don't treat him like a dead man. Don't treat Jesus like he's dead. Listen, he died, but he is not dead. That's the first person that that could be said of. When people die, here's what takes place. We talk about them in the past tense. He died, he's dead, he's gone. And do you know what we will do? We'll do certain things to pay homage to them. We'll do certain things to remember them by. We'll treat them like they're dead. Because they are. Time will pass. Time will go on. And do you know what takes place? People that were important. Folks that we would say are vital to our existence are forgotten and disregarded. And we all do it. Think about it. Everybody in this room has a great, great grandparent. These people were directly responsible for your life. If they did not exist, you would not exist. Raise your hand if you know the name of your great-great-grandparent. Great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. Y'all know the point I'm trying to make. You didn't have to raise your hand. You don't know, right? That's the point that I was trying to make. No hands raised. Nobody knows. People that were directly responsible for your life, you may pay them homage but they don't impact what you do on a daily basis. There may be one time per year, the day that they passed, where the emotions take you over in a very rich way, where you go and you see their grave and you make these promises because of your life, things are going to change. But at the end of the day, that's what we all do with folks that we know and love dearly that have died. Sadly, that's what a lot of us do with Jesus. We treat him like a dead man that was a good teacher, that made a lot of good impact. And once per year, there's some of us that may put on our best and actually find ourselves in a church and say, all right, I'm here because this is the day that he died and he rose and we're grateful. But I'm going to live my life as if he doesn't exist. But I want you to know, and we're saying it time and time again, religions in the world are based on ideologies, philosophies, ways that you should think and view the world. 
Christianity is not about a philosophy. It is about a person and an event. He died, which is the fate of all of us that have offended God and have sinned against him. Justice demands that all of us die. And it demands that we stay in the grave. Jesus rose from the dead to show the sacrifice for our sins was pleasing and acceptable in the sight of God. The resurrection is God's divine receipt saying sins have been paid for. Record is wiped clean for everybody that has thought of themselves but have put their trust in Jesus. It's all about this event. What took place here? That his death was not the end of the story. For Jesus' death wasn't final. His death was the beginning of our story. And it, if this is really true, it changes everything. Look here at verse 7. Right? It, he says this, listen. But go and tell his disciples, and then it has this word, and Peter. Why would it put him out of the, the group? He was one of the 12. When Jesus was getting ready to die, and he said, all of y'all are going to turn from me, Peter jumped up and says, not me, Lord. I'm never going to, to deny you. And in every gospel, it brings out Peter denied Jesus three times. So while, while the rest of the world may have thought of Peter as Jesus' disciple, Peter was a man that was likely gripped with his failures, and he didn't think of himself as that. And Jesus, after he raises from the dead, says, hey, make sure that you tell all of them, but especially make sure that you tell him. Let him know that his former failures are not final. So that all of us would know your failures, the ways that you've failed Jesus doesn't have to determine your destiny. You do have to own up to him though. When I was in Denton and I served as a college pastor, I had a friend named Murad who was a, Muslim, and we sat down one day and just kind of sat and talked, and um, he asked me, what's Easter all about? He's like, I've heard of it, but I have no clue. And so as I sit and I walk and I, uh, and, and I recount all this stuff with him, and I'm like, yeah, Christ died, Christ was killed, and then he rose. And his thought was, oh, so when he rose from the dead, did he go back and get all of the guys that Killed him, like taken, right? You know, you rise up and, you know, you go and kill all these guys. And I told him, I was like, no. Jesus rose from the dead, not to fight anybody, but to tell everybody, especially those of us that consider ourselves failures, that forgiveness has been offered by God. Your failures don't have to define you any longer. And so the message that he gives them 
is the same one that you and I have right now. And it's don't treat Jesus as if he's dead, but talk about him as if he actually got up from the grave. If we really believe that he got up from the grave, it shapes and it changes our conversation and our life. If this really took place and we really believe that it's true, then if you, if you lost somebody that you love and you've experienced death of somebody that you wish that you could have back, and they popped up from the grave. And it was a true event that took place. You would tell everybody. It would change you. Do you know how Christianity spreads? In chapter 14, everybody leaves Jesus because they're scared that they're going to be killed in the same way that he was. And then he raises from the grave. And they see him. And this fear is replaced with this amazing faithfulness and courage. And they go and they tell him and they expect that they're going to be killed. This fear is replaced with faithfulness. My challenge to you is don't stop talking about it. If Jesus really raised from the dead, then what that means is that there's nobody too far off. Think of the family members that you have that are lost. They are not too far gone. But the amazing comfort is that we can think of the family that is trusted in Christ that we've lost. And we could know that their destiny is the same as Christ. That he's been raised. That they've been raised. All the folks in this room in the course of this past year. The past years that have lost sisters. And brothers and children. That have trusted in this Jesus. It's hard and there is grief. But there is a unique sense of relief and comfort. It comes from the fact that we know that they're in the arms of our Savior. So all of this, I desperately want every one of us here to know. Your past failures do not disqualify you from relationship with God. Jesus' death his burial, and his resurrection on the cross was all so that anybody that considers themselves a failure would be a prime candidate for the forgiveness that God offers. God hates sin, and he shows how much he hates it because he was willing to brutally extinguish it when it was on the shoulders of his own son. But God shows how great his love is for us. And that when it comes to bringing us back to him, he didn't spare his own son. My prayer is that you would find freedom and forgiveness today. Regardless of if your familiarity with the church keeps you away and you find yourself 
here or your familiarity with the church keeps you here and you feel like you hear these truths, but they don't transform your life. If the resurrection is real, nothing about life that you know it has to stay the same. And my prayer is that it wouldn't. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the truth of the resurrection and what you've done, Father. You died for our sins, for our faults, for our inconsistencies, for our adulteries, for our lying, for our cheating, Father, for our hatred, for our racism, and the list goes on and on. You've died for all of that, Jesus. I pray that we wouldn't take your death lightly. I pray that we would be transformed by what you've done, and I pray that our conversation would be reflective of that truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.